maybe one of my favorite songs of all time. And it seemed like every church I've ever been to had kind of like a theme song or a theme hymn. And that's beyond any shadow of a doubt, the theme song for this church. I mean, you know, if God can use a Methodist to write a song like that, <laughs> He can do anything. Amen. I'm already starting off on the wrong foot, aren't I? And we, we are live. Listen, I've, I got some Methodist friends. Y'all know I love you. But uh, let's go to Mark chapter 12. I had a uh, preacher give me some advice years ago, and I never forgot it. He said, always preach every message like it could be your last because it could. And that's right, isn't it? We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know. And uh, obviously, I've been preaching through the book of Mark for well over a year, and I didn't plan it like this, but I, I just find it interesting. This is y'all's last Sunday here, and you're going to get to hear the one message I would preach if it was my last. If I knew that my life was coming to an end, and I only had one, one chance, one more sermon, one more text, this would be the text, and this would be the sermon. And so I almost even shudder to say that because then I've put pressure on myself that there's no way that I can withstand. But it's just the, the truth of this text. I mean, we're, we're standing on some holy ground this morning. And that I hope that you feel the weight and the gravity of what's being said here. And there's probably no other song I would like to sing before I get up to preach that than what we just did. And so everything's just building up. And listen, I know... I'm in an awkward position this morning. I am standing between Baptist and the food, okay? <laughs> but this is, this is my last sermon, okay? So just, just humor me. And it's, it, it has to be condensed because I really should preach it over about three sermons. So i got to condense. So let's, let's get to it. But uh, in the book of Mark, we have seen that Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant. And I, I haven't emphasized this a whole lot in the introduction, but I think we're going to see this clearer as we get closer to the crucifixion. But uh, you'll find that there are certain New Testament books that reflect certain Old Testament books. And the book of Mark reflects Isaiah. It reflects the suffering servant in Isaiah, the prophecies there. We're going to see this... Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, as we get closer to the cross. But the book of Mark is, as we've seen, it's much more in tune. It's much more focused on the works of Christ as opposed to the words of Christ, although we're going to see some words today, a mouthful. And we've seen casting out devils. We've seen uh, Christ heal people. We've seen Him train the disciples. So many works, so many good works uh, we've seen up to this point. But we find ourselves in this text in the middle of Crucifixion Week. And I just want to remind you the setting. I know we've taken several weeks in this one chapter, but don't forget that this takes place inside the temple. Jesus is preaching the gospel, and He is interrupted by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians who were a part of the Jewish government and the hierarchy at that time. And they try to trip him up with a series of questions. And, and we've looked at a different sermon based on different questions that have been asked to Jesus. We saw the, the fir at first we saw the question of his authority. By what authority do you do these things? Um, he's God. It's a pretty good answer. He's God. He doesn't have to ask permission from anybody to do anything. Second question had to do with his allegiance. Should we pay tribute to Caesar? It was a question of allegiance. 
The third question had to do with his apologetics. They had a, a question and a bo- really a bogus scenario that they gave him, the Sadducees did, about the resurrection, which is strange because they don't even believe in the resurrection. Then, then there was a question of his affirmation. There was a scribe that came, and he did seem to have honorable intentions, unlike the rest of them. But he asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He was seeking Jesus' affirmation as to what is the greatest commandment. Of course, it's love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. But in our text this morning, immediately after what we've seen, in our text we find that Jesus is going to turn the tables. It's time for him to ask a question now. So I'm getting excited already. And the question that he asked them has to do with the person of Messiah. In fact, it has to do with him being the Messiah. And before we read our text, we must remember to understand that the Jewish mindset about Jesus as Messiah is different than ours is today. When we read the Scriptures... We need to be really careful not to be guilty of anachronisms. Now, what an anachronism is, I know that's a $12 word. All it means is, is when you take present hindsight knowledge and you read it back into history as if they would have understood something the same way that you do. And you have to understand, when we think about Jesus as Messiah, we have the whole revelation of God. We can see it from front to back, from beginning to end. We know that He's the Son of God. We know He's God incarnate. We know all the things that the Bible says about it. But at, at that time, when they thought of Jesus as Messiah, and remember, they believed He was the Messiah. Now, obviously, the Pharisees, the, the leaders, they're trying to fight against it. But everybody else, they, they believe He's Messiah. I mean, this is proven by His triumphal entry just two days prior to this incident. They're throwing down palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, He that comes in the name of the Lord. And then they call Him a Son of David because they knew the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. They believed He was the Messiah, but to them, that meant that He was going to be a great military king that came back by force and restored the throne of David and cast off the chains of Roman rule. That's who they thought He was. And so we have to understand that. They did believe He was a Messiah, but that meant something different to them. And so they had no clue that He was God. So we don't need to read that knowledge. And, and remember this too. This is a good, a good note uh, here. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about the person of Jesus, they start at earth level... And throughout the course of the book, they go up to heaven. They reveal Jesus a little bit along. And as you read the Synoptic Gospels, it would be very helpful to try to cast out everything you know and read it as somebody reading it for the first time. A first century Jew as they try to build the character of Christ to a Jewish mindset. The book of John is the only gospel that starts at heaven and comes down. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And we go down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, John just comes out and says it, just like it is. 
But the rest of them build his character. And as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've been seeing this evolution take place, this progressive uh, revelation. I think it's important to point that out. Now, it is true that Christ was a son of David through Mary, but he was so much more than that. We're going to look at that. This is where our text picks up. Let's read the Word of God together. Mark chapter 12, I will begin in verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm not even worthy to preach this text. I'm not worthy to preach any text in this book. But Lord, I'm thankful that you have made us worthy uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if anybody's sitting in here today or listening to the live stream or wherever they may be listening, Lord, uh, God, that if they're not saved, that you would save them, that you would open their eyes to the great salvation that's in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit, into me of sin and self, uh, hide me behind the shadow of the cross and make preaching powerful and understandable. Lord, I pray for those that are sick and can't be here. I think about uh, Kevin, Lord, and uh, just different ones that are struggling. We do lift up the trots, Lord, as they're going to be uh, opening a new chapter of their life. And I pray that you go with them every step of the way. Bless our time now, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name I praise things. Amen. Now... If I was to give this message a title this morning, and I try to do that, I believe the title would be The Lord's Favorite Verse of Scripture, or God's Favorite Bible Verse. Have you ever thought, now we know all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know that it's all important to God, and if it wasn't, He wouldn't have given it to us. But have you ever had the thought that maybe, just maybe, God Himself had a favorite verse of Scripture. Now, I've got some favorite verses of Scripture. I Usually when I sign my name to something, I put John 17, 3. But I believe that if God had a favorite Bible verse, it would be the one that Jesus quotes word for word in the text we just read. In this text, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 and verse 1. Psalm 110 Verse 1, it's a messianic psalm. And you say, well, Brother Brandon, how do you come to the conclusion? What is your argument that this could possibly be God's favorite Bible verse? And it's simply this. It's the most quoted verse in all the Bible. In fact, it's quoted in its entirety in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's quoted in the book of Acts, and it's quoted twice in the book of Hebrews. It's, It's quoted in part... Uh, Many more times than that. So it is the most quoted verse in all of Scripture. And so I want to preach on God's favorite Bible verse for just a few minutes this morning. And you say, well, why is Psalm 110 and verse 1 the Lord's favorite verse of Scripture? Spoiler alert. It's because it magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to please the God of heaven... You just make it a habit to magnify and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got six things I want to look at briefly 
in how this verse exalts and magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, it magnifies Christ in His deity. Let's look at verse 35. And Jesus answered and said, while He taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. When we look at Matthew's companion gospel, he was a little more specific in the question. He said, uh, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, David. And they would be right about that. And his response is what we read in the book of Mark here. Now, this is, man, this is so deep. This is so good. We have to get this. I'm going to spend the majority of my time this morning on point one about his deity. Because the deity of Christ is the most debated issue in all of church history. You go all the way back to the beginning, the very first ecumenical council of the church, the Council of Nicaea, uh, 325 I believe it was, uh, was because of the teachings of Arius. We've, we looked at this a few months back when we started our series on Wednesday nights, but Arius was a false teacher. He taught that, that Christ was not eternal God, but that He was a created being. He was some type of demigod. And I guess you could say he was the first or the original Jehovah's Witness because he teaches exactly what they teach today. And I'm thankful that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of those some 318 bishops that gathered from all over the world to debate this were right. They went to the Scriptures and they realized, how can you read this book? How can you read the book of John? How can you read the first chapter of the book of John and not come to the conclusion that Jesus is God? It's because it's a lie from the pit of hell is why. And every cult, I don't care how nice they are, I don't care how well they dress, I don't care how convincing their rhetoric is, if they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, they're lost and they're on their way to hell, and anybody who believes their lies are going to hell with them. I've got no tolerance for it. I'm not going to mess around with that stuff. It's straight from the pit. And so I, I'm kind of hot, if you can't tell. I've, I've actually... As I mentioned, the, the videos that I put out on YouTube even before I came here, I, I still get comments almost every week. And this week I've been going back and forth with a guy that he says he's not Jehovah's Witness, but he believes everything they do. And he came across the video where I was debating some Jehovah's Witness at, the, at Mississippi State University. They just happened to be out there the same day we were there. And he was trying to make the argument that Jesus isn't God. And I, I took him plainly to the Scriptures but they, they just can't accept that because it doesn't fit in the logic of their four-pound brain that the Father could be God, the Holy Spirit could be God, and Jesus could be God. They can't fit it. Listen, friend, when God fits in the logic of this brain, your brain, He's not God anymore. And we're all in a lot of trouble. And what we need to do is just accept what He said and say, even if I don't understand that, God, you clearly taught that. He's one God manifested in three persons. He is God come in the flesh. And this verse proves it. This Psalm 110 verse 1. He states that the Messiah will be a son of His or a descendant of David. We see that plainly and the Jews believe that. 
But David makes a strange statement here. Let's look at verse 36. For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, in other words, this, David wasn't just coming up with this. This was given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. He said, For David himself said, By the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he his son? David calls his son, the descendant who will be the Messiah, he calls his son Lord. Who in here calls their son Lord? If you do, please don't tell me about it. I don't want to know what, what goes on in that house. And so certainly in this culture, they would have, said, they would have been like, huh, what? I hadn't really seen that before. Why, why would he call his son Lord? Huh. And then why would he say, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand in heaven, by the way. This is talking about heaven, the throne of heaven. What kind of earthly king sits upon the throne of heaven? What kind of son would David call Lord? It's because he's not just an earthly king. He's an eternal king. God in the flesh. And I, I, it's important to point this out. In verse 36, when it says, The Lord said unto my Lord. Do you notice that the first time the word Lord is used, it's in all caps. Do you see that? The second time the word Lord is used, it's not in all caps. Why did the translators do that? It's because it is signifying different Hebrew words for the name of God. Now, when you find Lord in all caps, it's speaking of Yahweh, the self-existent one. Now, I want to point this out, and I'm not going to run a rabbit here. But I personally, and I don't lose my joy over this. I don't look at anybody crossways when they do this. I am not a fan of the name Jehovah. And I'll tell you why. It's because it is an invention of the Latin language. They didn't have anything that could express Yahweh like it is in the Hebrew, so that's what they came up with. And so I know what they're saying, but you won't find that in the Hebrew. It's Yahweh with a Y. And in fact, the way that the Hebrew scholars used to write it, it was spelled uh, Y-H-W-H. There was no vowels. It was just consonants. And that presented a problem because how do you pronounce that? How do you pronounce Y-H-W-H if you were, exact, if you were just trying to say it? No, please don't try that. Please, y'all. <laughs> but it's known as the tetragametron uh, or grammatron. I'm trying to say that. But it's the four consonants that make up Y-H-W-H. And the thought here is that we can't even pronounce the name of God. He's so high up, we can't even pronounce His name. And so they, they came up with different ways. They added vowels so we could try to pronounce it. And when it got translated into Latin and other languages, they, they replaced the Y with the J. That's why I'm not a huge fan of it. And so I, I always like to mess the Jehovah's Witnesses up because I tell them, listen, your whole belief system is based on a word that's not even in the Scriptures. <laughs> it means, as I said, the self-existent one, Yahweh in all caps. And when you see that, you know it's talking about Yahweh. But here, Lord, the second use, when it's not all caps, is the word Adonai. And the word Adonai means master. So he's saying, Yahweh said unto my Adonai, or the self-existent one said to my master, Sit here on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. 
And so this is, not, this is not merely an earthly king. This is God in human flesh. Jesus is God, the second person of the triune Godhead. And anything else is a false Christ. Listen, God did not send a mere creature to die for the sins of other creatures. What kind of coward of a God would that be? I think I'll create a creature to die for my other sinful creatures because I'm not going to do it myself. God did not just create a creature to die for other creatures. He became human flesh. He became the God-man and died Himself for His creatures. <laughs> what a God. Amen. What a Savior. Born through the womb of a virgin, took on human flesh and died for our sin. And I would say this just from an apologetic standpoint. Again, I simply don't have time to get into a lot of this stuff. It should be a series. I'm trying to make it one message. Say thank you, Brother Brandon. <laughs> but we know that he was God for several reasons. But the first one is he claimed to be God. This is what I was talking uh, to this young man about this week. He clearly claimed to be God several times, multiple times, more times than I could spend, certainly in a service. But two of the clearest times to me are in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. Now, in John 10, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, I and the Father are one. Starting to sound like Trinitarian language, isn't it? I and the Father are one. And the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, for what good work do you stone me? And they said, for a good work we stone thee not. But because as a man you make yourself to be God. You make thyself God. So the Jews gave their interpretation of what he was saying. You as a man are claiming to be God and that's blasphemy and you deserve to die. Somebody needs to tell the Jews that even though they were standing right there and listening to every word he said, they misunderstood what he said. And by the way, what this man's argument was is just because the Jews misunderstood him doesn't mean he's really God. And I said, really? Because here's the thing, Jesus never corrected them. Now, if they thought he was God, and they clearly did, it takes an incredible amount of mental gymnastics to make it say anything else. If they believe that, and they publicly said that, and He never corrected them, guess what? That's still a lie. Because He's letting them believe something that's not true. Now John was clear, hey, hey I'm not the Messiah. Don't worship me. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus didn't do that. He also claimed to be God in John chapter 10. When he was saying, he was talking uh, once again about the Father. And he said that, he made the statement that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They said, you're not even 50 years old. How did you see our father Abraham? And he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And again, they took up stone. Stone him, why? Because they understood what he was saying. He said... You know that God that, that appeared to Abraham and spoke to him and made that covenant with him? That was me. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. He says, I'm going to give you one even better. You know that God that spoke to Moses from the burning bush? The I am? That was me too. And then they go to kill him. So to say that Jesus never claimed to be God, you're just not even looking. You don't value truth. You don't even care. The, the Word of God is not your final authority. I would say stop kidding yourself. 
And because the thing is, if he claimed to be God and he wasn't God, that makes him a liar, not worthy of anybody's worship. And a lunatic, by the way. Somebody claiming to be God who's not really God. But then another great reason we know that he's God is because he openly accepted worship. Not only on earth, but he now accepts it in heaven. Now, if he's not really God and he accepts worship as God, not only is he a liar, he's a thief. He's robbing from God. The most clear example of this is in John 20, verses 28 through 29. It says, and Thomas, this is after the resurrection. It says, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, not little g, big g, God, my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So not only does Thomas call him Lord and God, he's worshiping him as God. But not only did he do that, but Jesus didn't correct him either. Quite to the contrary, he said, he said good job, Thomas, you finally get it. You finally got it. It took you seeing my resurrected body and the prints and my nails and feet, but you finally got it, son. And he said, blessed are those who believe without even seeing. He says, in other words, you finally got it right. Good for you and good for everybody else that gets it just like you. How can you make it say anything else? He's God. God incarnate. He's no mere earthly king. This is the king of kings and lord of lords we're talking about. No wonder the Jews couldn't receive this. It was too wonderful for them. By the way, I'll say this in closing on this point. Don't get excited on this point. (laughs) Most scholars agree that this instance that we're reading about this morning, this is the closest that Jesus ever came to flat out telling them who he was in a public setting. I mean, he really did. They just didn't get it. So we see that, I believe this is God's favorite Bible verse, Psalm 110 and verse 1, because it magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ in His deity. But the second reason that the Lord loves this verse so much is because it magnifies Jesus Christ in His suffering, in His crucifixion. It uses the word enemies here until He makes His enemies His footstool. And in verse 30, in the verse 36, now the enemies, who are they? Well, obviously, they'd have to be sinners. Obviously, the forces of evil, Satan, and everybody on his team. Uh, But those who crucified them would be his enemies, and those that live like he is dead now would be the enemies of God. Christ, and I want to point this out, Christ went to the cross voluntarily. He didn't have to do that. And even up until the Garden of Gethsemane, even up to the point where they were getting ready to whip him or to drive the nails in his hands and feet, all he had to do was call thousands of angels to come destroy the world and set him free. If we've got that, that might be a good uh, invitation song at the end. uh, 10,000 angels, I can't remember, but I'm sure you know it. But, um, But he didn't do that. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down. He took every blow, every lash of the whip on his back, every clump of hair that was pulled from his beard, the nails in his hands and feet, the humiliation and shame. He took all of it voluntarily. He didn't have to. Now, I know that sometimes we hate our trials and we don't like to suffer and we can have Baptist pity parties sometimes. I'm really, I'm pretty good at the Baptist pity party. But the trials I go through, I didn't choose them unless they're consequences for sin. I'm talking about God-ordained trials. I didn't choose them. He chose them. I don't have an option except just to follow God, 
He did. And He did it voluntarily. And at the end, I love this. At the end, after all of this was done to him, he raised his head and looked both the crowd and the invisible forces of darkness in the eye and said, It is finished. And then he gave up the ghost. I like what A.W. Pink said here. He said, It is finished. This was not the despairing cry of a helpless martyr. It was not an expression of satisfaction that the end of his sufferings was now reached. It was not the last gasp of a worn out life. No, it was the declaration on the part of the divine Redeemer that all for which he came from heaven to earth to do was now done. That all which was needful to reveal the glorious character of God had now been accomplished. That everything necessary for the putting away of the sins of His people, providing for them a perfect standing before God, securing for them an eternal inheritance, and fitting them for it had now all been done. <laughs> Mission accomplished. God loves Psalm 110 and verse 1 because it glorifies Christ in His suffering on the cross. Thirdly, God loves this verse because it glorifies Christ in His resurrection. Uh, Talking about this theme of enemies here. He defeated the ultimate enemy, which is death. Nobody else has ever had power over death. Nobody but Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. And we talked about Yahweh and Adonai. And and here Yahweh gives Adonai an open invitation to reign with Him. Dead people can't reign. Dead people can't reign, but risen kings sure can. Risen lords can. Or I guess I should say singular because He's the only one in that category. And when Christ was raised from the dead... It was the ultimate approval on the part of God the Father that He was satisfied with the work of Christ. Even death itself cannot defeat our Lord. Psalm 110 and verse 1 glorifies Christ in His resurrection. I told you all I'd be fast. I got three more and we're done. But God loves this verse because it magnifies Christ in His ascension. And by the way, if we were to point out... Obviously, the deed of Christ would be in there, but also His ascension. This, the setting of this verse is really a prophecy about the ascension. I know we don't often talk about the ascension a lot. I think it gets overlooked as far as some other things that Christ did, but it's every bit as important as everything else. Listen, because He died, we can live. Because He rose, we're going to rise. Because He ascended, we'll ascend. And so it's very important. Without the ascension, he can't do his priestly work. This verse is a prophecy about the ascension of Christ. And it's because of that that we can follow in his footsteps. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But then fifthly, God loves this verse because it magnifies his priestly work. What is he doing right now? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's interceding for his children. He's interceding for His people. Do you know why you can't lose your salvation? Because the Lord's praying for you. Because He's interceding on your behalf. Because He keeps the, His sacrifice front and center of everything. You can't lose your salvation because we have a perfect Savior and a perfect Advocate and a perfect Priest. And the only way that we can lose our salvation is if Christ can fail in any of those offices. And He can't do it. He can't do it. We see His priestly work here. 
But then lastly, and I'm coming in for a landing. I know y'all are impressed at the, the blitzkrieg at which I'm going at this. <laughs> but God loves this verse because it magnifies Christ in His sovereignty. Now, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to get mixed up on this. I've, I've met some people that are mixed up on this. They act like that Christ isn't actually technically going to reign until His second coming. Friend, He's reigning right now. He's reigning right now. And the only reason that the devil and the forces of hell and evil and suffering haven't been dealt with is because the king has decreed it's not time for him to do that yet. And as soon as he decrees and as soon as he fulfills his decree, he's already decided, it's already made up in his mind. It's not like he's, you know, putting his finger up there to figure out what he needs to do. He knows exactly when he's coming back. And when he decides to do that, all that's going to end. It's going to be over with. And so we can rejoice in that. When he makes his enemies his footstool, that's also a prophecy of the second coming. When he makes all of his enemies his footstool. Isn't that going to be a wonderful day? I mean, uh, Christ is going to rule on this earth for a thousand years, rule and reign in perfect peace, and we're going to get to serve him. Listen, no wonder God loves this verse so much. Because in this one verse, you see every major attribute of Christ. We see Him in His deity. We see Him in His humanity as the Son of David. We see Him in His suffering on the cross. We see Him in His resurrection as He reigns. We see Him in His ascension where God the Father seats Him in His right hand. We see Him in His priestly work because that's what He's doing at the right hand of God. We see Him in His sovereignty because He is ruling and reigning even as we speak. Isn't that a comforting truth? I really believe I could make an argument for this being the Lord's favorite verse in Scripture, Psalm 110 and verse 1, and it magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if in our lives we're magnifying Him. I wonder if He's that big of a deal to us. Because, you know, a lot of people, I'm just being honest, a lot of people that even claim to be Christian you know, they, they have other things they're passionate about. They love doing, and Jesus is just kind of a, a side thing. You know, he's not, he's not the entree. He just may be the salt on top of it, add, add a little flavor to everything else that's going on there. And that's not the case, friend. That shouldn't be the case. I mean, if we really believe that the God of heaven came to this world, died for His creatures, died for us, rose from the dead, that He is reigning, and everything that happens in this world only happens because He decreed it or allowed it. And there's nothing that happens outside of His power, nothing. It's hard to have a bad day. And if we really believe that He is coming in, and we really believe that He is going to judge the world and judge us individually, judge the world in righteousness... It'll change the way we do some things. That, that's why I've always I've said it before and I said again. I want to encourage you to be faithful to church, be faithful to read your Bible, be faithful to pray and witness and hand out gospel tracts, and be committed to raise your family in the nurture and admission of the Lord. I want to encourage you to do all these things. I really do. I pray for you. I try to preach the word of God and feed the sheep. But I stop short of browbeating people. 
and getting a whip and a chair and trying to get you motivated and trying to play the Holy Ghost. Because if you can't get excited over what we've seen in this text this morning, there's nothing that I can do to keep you motivated. Because as soon as I get tired or take a break, you're going to quit. You're going to quit. I, I Listen, I'm not in the business of holding up wet noodles because as soon as I let go, they fall again. Be straight as long as I'm holding them up there. I, I can't do that. I've got enough. Listen, I need to clean up my own yard. I've got enough I need to clean up. I've got enough I need to deal with. And I've got enough responsibilities that I need to take on. But friend, has it ever settled in your heart just who Jesus is, what He's done, and what He's going to do? <laughs> David said himself by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? Do you know him this morning? Do you serve him this morning? If not, I wouldn't leave here the same way I came in. I'd love to pray with you, talk to you, whatever I need to do. If you're not saved, if you are, maybe there's some priorities that you need to get straight this morning. Because there's nothing else and nobody else that's worthy of our worship and praise. Only He is. Only He's worthy of the entire pursuit of our life. Keep in mind now, this is right at, He quotes this verse right after the text where He says that the greatest commandment is to serve the Lord with, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And here's the motivation because of who He is. He's worthy this morning.